Hello, good afternoon, and welcome to CIO Leadership Live. I'm Mary Fran Johnson, your host for the broadcast and a contributing columnist on CIO.com, where I write about business strategy and boardroom issues for technology leaders. Twice a month, we produce CIO Leadership Live with the support of CIO.com and our CIO Executive Council. Now, usually this broadcast runs live on LinkedIn and Twitter, but in the way of all big IT projects, we had a little bit of a snafu today. So this version of CIO Leadership Live is actually being recorded, and it will be available on all of our usual platforms. You'll be able to find it on uh, CIO.com by the end of today and also through our YouTube channel, which is called IDG, IDG Tech Talk. So let me dive into introducing my, um, my, my guest for today. He is Brad Clay, the Senior VP and Chief Information and Compliance Officer for Lexmark International. Brad is responsible for all aspects of digital transformation, including strategy and thought leadership. He also oversees worldwide IT operations, applications, cyber and physical security, data privacy, and internal audit functions. While Lexmark has made its name as a manufacturer of printers around the world, its business today has expanded to provide cloud services and secure IoT, Internet of Things services, at scale. Based in Lexington, Kentucky, this $2.5 billion private company employs more than 10,000 people globally, and those people are managing more than 1 million connected devices around the world. Before he took on this expanded CIO role in late 2016, Brad served as Lexmark CIO and was in charge of integrating any of the company's software acquisitions. He's a Lexmark veteran who joined the company in 2002 and brought with him numerous business and IT roles that have spanned director of finance, planning, and sales operation throughout North America, plus a number of different positions in global solutions delivery and architectural strategy. Before he came to Lexmark back in 2002, Brad held other senior IT and business leadership positions at Quest Eaton Corp and Chevron, where he worked in a wide range of disciplines in manufacturing, product management, marketing, and sales. With the bulk of his career spent on the business side, he approaches his CIO plus expanded role a bit differently than many CIOs who have come up through the technology ranks. And so that and many other topics are what we're going to be addressing today on this CIO Leadership Live. Brad, thanks so much for being with us today. Oh, Mary Fran, thank you for inviting me. This is uh, certainly an exciting time and uh, it's always great to talk with you. I know it's one of those exciting times in a good sense and a bad sense. Um, I often start out on Leadership Live by talking about whatever is disrupting the world around us. And of course, that used to be about marketplaces and trends in the market. Today, when we say disruption, I think we immediately think of the COVID crisis and the impact that it's having on individual companies and also just on the broader landscape around us. You have had at Lexmark, you have one of those great success stories about pretty much being able to pivot more than the, those more than 10,000 people around the world from working in corporate offices to working at home in just a few days. Uh, tell us what the last couple of months, how, how you did that so pain, painlessly and what sort of impact that's been having on your business, if any. 
Well, so it's a it's obviously a great topic and one that's really uh, very relevant right now. You know, for Lexmark, we several years ago, and this, you know, I'd go back to the beginning of 2018. We had been looking at the future of our business and and how do we enable really work from anywhere. And one of the uh, really the directions that we had there was to to re to um, reimagine how we enabled collaboration, how we enabled communication, how we could enable really a, an individual to be connected within Lexmark, both the network as well as socially, right, with, a, with his, his or her peers. And we, we reimagined how that would happen or how that could happen. And it led us to really eliminate kind of the best of breed approach we had, which is a bunch of applications that we had that really ran autonomously and were loosely connected uh, we chose instead the Microsoft platform with Teams and Outlook and Exchange, et cetera. And really that platform, both from a, a business function as well as a security uh, perspective, you know, we integrated that. We rolled that out to Lexmark globally. And, you know, we had completed that by the end of 2018. So it was going into 2019. So we had a fair amount of experience with it. Adoption was actually really good on the platform. Um, but the level of usage and maturity was, you know, was still coming along. Sure. Then, you know, we hit March 15th and we, you know, we declared a, you know, a, a business continuity event. And we went from essentially zero people working outside the office to uh, 95 plus percent working from home. And that's when we think about our business, that's everything from TSC agents, uh, technical support center. So someone that answers a call in a call center uh, in Colombia or in the Philippines or, you know, a number of locations around the world to shared service centers to development uh, centers that like in India, you know, where they had complete lockdowns in the Philippines and in, and in India. So those, everyone left, left the office, closed their doors, went home and picked up working, you know, two days later from, uh, from wherever they were. And for us, that, that happened very seamlessly. Uh, mm -hmm. The continuity the continuity, the aspect of being able to actually work from anywhere and still be able to deliver the business results, meaning the shipments that needed to happen, the orders that needed to get processed, the customer calls that needed to be taken, as well as from an IT perspective, our ability to continue doing the work that we were doing before. So we were in the middle of a, a very large migration of our entire ERP system to the Azure HANA Enterprise Cloud, right? our SAP system. So we were right in the middle of that in addition to a number of other large projects that were going on. And we've continued on with all of those. We completed yeah. that migration. We keep completed another uh, CPQ migration this, uh, this past weekend. You know, yeah. those are very large change management projects. CP and we were able to, you know, CP to really execute all of that without losing, uh, you know, any real productivity. Mm -hmm. And CPQ being? Ah, sorry, configure price quote. So that's the, uh, that's an entirely new system for us to, it replaces an older system that we had, but it is how we do basically all deals, right? Any special bids, any programs, any um, types of interaction, usually with our customers, we'll usually flow through that configuration and pricing tool. Oh, good. Thank you. So obviously a very critical part of our business. And that's the kind of projects that we continued on with because we had um, both the confidence, not only of the IT team, but really the confidence of the, the business teams. And so what we saw to tie this back to the beginning, what we saw was where we had people adopting, say, the use of teams before, 
you know, now they've been able to understand how to use it to really drive productivity, where I can set up a team's channel, people that have never done that before. And, and I can take and I can form groups instantly and I can embed PowerPoint and spreadsheets and things like that in that channel. So I can track activities. I can track statuses. I can track uh, shifts. I can track people's availability. And so all of those kinds of things have materialized really in just the last, yeah you know, in the last 90 days. Well, and that, that has to be one of the unusual upsides to the whole crisis is that anything that would have been a change management hurdle in the past, it seems like just people in general have adapted so quickly to using these tools. I, I've heard people talk about what would have taken two years of, you know, user encouragement and change management work often happened within two months. So that that definitely seems to have accelerated. It sounds like you really experienced that at Lexmark. Uh, people not only are more forgiving in times of a crisis because there's, you know, there are, there are a lot of things vying for their, um, for their attention. The other aspect of it though, that it really points out that I think is important is that people are still the gate to improvement or change. I mean, in, 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 I don't really think of change outside of the, the aspect of improvement, but people are still that gate, right? That has, that has actually the learning curve, all of those things, you know, those dynamics that hasn't changed. That's still there. And, yeah. and honestly, one of the things that it has allowed here, you know, even if you look at our example, a simple example, like using a team's channel and the willingness of people to do that, there's a lot of resistance. People just didn't want to change. They don't want to try it. But now they're working from home, they're forced to try it, or they, they have a, a specific issue and, you know, and somebody shares with them how you know, they can use technology to solve that issue. And yeah. that's the thing that, you know, when, when we talk about, you know, for, our, for our company, you know, what's next, right? This workplace, how do we capture the positive lessons, I'll, call, I'll say of workplace flexibility, how do we capture those positive parts? Mm-hmm. And not lose relationships and the other things that, you know, that, that may be at risk because you're isolated, you know, you're, you're physically more isolated. Yes. Yeah. Well, and you know, we, we've, uh, I, uh, whenever I start throwing around terms like digital transformation, I always remind myself that it's such a huge buzzword, kind of like saying innovation or IT leadership. You know, you always want to get a little more specific and, and yeah. have a couple of how-to examples. And the digital transformation that you and I have talked about happening at Lexmark has been about transforming from essentially a traditional manufacturing company and the way those operate and look at the world to more of a technology company. Talk a little bit about that and how long that process has been taking. And I think we've already mentioned some of the things that have now sped up because of the COVID response. Yeah, what I would say there is that the the thing that we discovered, the thing that I discovered, right, in terms of going through that process, that transformation, was the need to collaborate and operate differently. So previously in in a manufacturing perspective, development, you know, they focused on hardware products and firmware. Mm-hmm. Now development focuses on developing cloud and, and other types of solutions, but then someone needs to run that, right? And the collaboration or transformation that we've had within Lexmark has been IT transitioning from being focused on the back office and delivering, you know, trying to make IT, as I often hear people say, you know, making it boring, right? So nobody will ever call me. That is not the IT organization that we have today. Today's IT organization, I think, is the most exciting place to work because we're having to, we're getting the opportunity 
to help every business area change, reimagine how they do work. Now, yes. if we take that development example, you know, there's, there's now a collaboration between development and IT that never existed before. And it's there because development builds it. Mm -hmm. I'd say a cloud application like cloud fleet management or cloud print management, or, you know, a couple of our products. And then IT runs, we run it, right? So they build it, we run it. So we have a DevOps pipeline, you know, the CICD pipeline that is integrated between the two. We have what we call the one Lexmark cloud. And that one Lexmark cloud is really the digital transformation because okay. we have now, we, it is really one Lexmark. So marketing, development, IT, you know, those steering committee, those product alignment meetings are a collaboration now of, of I like to believe the, you know, the best resource or the best that Lexmark has to offer because we're pulling that from every one of these area, these organizations and bringing it to bear on a customer problem to deliver, you know, an excellent service and product. Mm -hmm. Well, and this has led you to one of the, the big things I want to make sure we talk about and kind of explain what it means. You, uh, and you're the first person that, uh, first CIO that I've spoken with who has described it this way, transformation as a service. You know, we all know the as a service, there's software as a service and platform as a service and all of the other as a services. I've never heard of the idea of bundling together a transformation initiative and offering that as a service. So tell me about that. Where did that idea come uh, from? Yeah. So that, so that really came out of a lot of these discussions. It's, you know, I can't take credit for the name. That's some of my team have, uh, you know, have, have come up with that, but it is, it's really a different way for us to approach and, and marketing hates the term because there are lots of as a service buzzwords, but primarily it changes the focus from project based interactions with IT to continuous interactions with IT. Because when we think about the, the way, when people try to engage IT, it's they show up with an idea, they want something, we form yeah. a project, there's a workshop, you know, and, and we go from there. Yeah. Now, transformation as a service is different. It's different because it bundles together two fundamental capabilities. The first is the, the ability to create did, uh, deep business insights, right? So how do I create learning? That's the digital thread that ties together all of the components of our business from a data perspective so that we can answer the question, the most difficult questions for our business users. We can answer those questions quickly. Mm -hmm. But with that, you also need the digital asset. And the digital asset is really as it, it's a different idea, right? It's a different idea because we are trying to containerize the business process, the application, and really all the components of it. So if you think about Docker, what Docker is for code, yeah. the digital asset is for the business process. And so we want to, on a continuous basis, be able to take that deep business insight, the answer to some question, and we want to be able to go change the business process or create a new business process and do that quickly, right? I would say instantaneously. And so that we are able to learn and put into action instantly. And oh. that, in essence, that is the essence of transformation as a service. We want that to be a continuous thing. The, mm -hmm. the digital asset, when I, when I talk about containerizing that, yeah, it, it has both the business process definition. It has the application definition in it, but we actually tie everything into that asset. So if you think about training plans or you think about um, testing, right? Testing is a great example. Typically in our agile, you know, in our agile uh, process, we'll have, you know, a, um, 
put together a sprint. That sprint will be made up of a number of user stories. Within the user story, that the test criteria, right, the test plan, that actually becomes the acceptance criteria. And so now we have a container that shows not only here's the thing I'm going to go build, and it impacts the application, the process, the data, et cetera, but everything all the way down to how we're going to test it is built into that definition of the asset. And that's, that's, really, the, that's really the idea, right, is to be able to learn and put into action as quickly as possible. And so the, the, the DevOps example is one concrete way you've done it. If I was someone sitting on the business side of the company, what would you point to that here was something that might have been a project to begin with, but actually became the service that transformed uh, what you were after? What's another example on the business side? Actually, another great example is uh, what we call days to depletion. So we have, we wow. have a, an opportunity to look at um, a printer. And a printer will tell you that it is low on toner. And it'll tell you that you're low on toner and you get a little light on the, the, the screen and, and it's doing that based on a position of a, a, a sensor or a position of a paddle or some other device within the toner cartridge. But really to predict when it's going to be empty requires a whole lot of other data, right? Like time of year, seasonality, the type of industry that you're in the usage that you've had up to that point. And so, you know, I'd like to use the example of a school district, right? A school district typically would print a whole lot of paper right up until the point that everybody leaves. Mm -hmm. So you have to know that June is a time of high printing, but August isn't, that kind of seasonality. And so we've been able to take the digital thread, we've been able to take that kind of, you know, uh, sensor data, marry it with other data that we have about usage around industries and even the, the number of users that are assigned to a, 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 a printer. So that's going to be something that comes out of the, the cloud statistics. Marry that together to be able to predict within two days when a toner cartridge will be empty, which means that it is about 75 or 80% more accurate than it was before. And so instead of 15 days, we're down to now two. And, you know, I like to say that, you know, that's, it avoids, you want to hit, we want to know the exact day that a cartridge is empty, not a day before, not a day after, because both of those are, you know, one's a bad experience. I couldn't print and I needed to. And the other is actually waste. I took it out too early, right? There was, there was still toner left in the cartridge. And so that's, that is a, a real world example. And that's changed how we think about uh, how we calculate, how we estimate, you know, mm-hmm. when a, uh, a device will be in fact empty. And it's, and it is uh, leveraging information from, you know, from this digital thread where we have all that data that we can tie together and do that in a constructive way. And, uh, and really, again, reimagine how we calculate when we send a, a cartridge out for refill or okay. replacement. Well, I, uh, I can't imagine why your marketing people don't love this because usually marketing is so interested in anything that's just a new way of thinking about something. Um, and, but as we were talking about this earlier, you did make the point that in order to pull off transformation as a service, you need to have a lot of trust between your IT division and your business people. Let's move over and talk about a little bit about what you've done to build and establish and further that level of trust. Wow. So that's, 
it's really the cornerstone of driving change, right? So as we think about what, you know, what we have focused on, for IT to have more influence, for IT to be a better partner, for IT to help drive transformation and collaboration, trust is obviously a, a big piece of that. And so we really focus on four things. And the first is, you know, not surprisingly, is around accountability. It's around competence. Mm -hmm. And I think we earn that through operational excellence. Mm -hmm. So when we're able to maintain systems, we're able to create what I like to call a zero defect culture where we just don't have incidents. There's, then you have more credibility. You, you have that, that uh, and we own it, right? That, that's accountability. That's the competence. That's but the move beyond that. Foundation working flawlessly, essentially. That's the idea, right? It, you don't have to think about it. It's like the phone service. It's there. If you pick up, you get a dial tone. That's right. And when you pick up and there is no dial tone, it's a really bad feeling, right? And, and, and people then infer why it's not working. And, that, and they always go to that, well, you just only care about yourself or you're not competent. So that's really the foundation. If you don't have that foundation, it's, it's hard to move beyond that kind of hierarchy of needs. Up the, up the chain. You know, the next is communication. One of the things that I find in IT is that, that uh, a lot of tech, well, I won't even say it's just IT. A lot of technology roles tend to be very insular because you have individuals that are really just confident around what they do and they don't really like to branch out. They don't, in a lot of cases, they're, they're introverts. They're not extroverts, right? They're not, you know, yeah. the marketing side of it. And so you have to get by that. Without communication, it's, there's no relationship. Mm -hmm. And then the last part of that, so this is the fourth piece, the fourth piece is an empathy. And empathy is to me, the, the, that's the goal, right? That you are interacting with members of, that you support, other areas of the business, and they feel that you really get it. You understand what I'm going through. You understand what it's like over here. And, and that's an area that's a, that, that is the toughest piece, right? To get to that highest level of really having people that understand. And to build that, you know, one of the things that I'd say that I try to do personally is actively recruit from other areas of the business to have them come into leadership roles in, you know, leading our front office, for example, was a lady that it came out of uh, our management services business. Mm -hmm. um, the, uh, my CISO actually came out of our R&D organization where he was doing firmware security. And, totally. you know, everybody, you know, they come in and like, I don't know anything about IT. And I said, you know, we can teach you about that. You know, we have training around ITIL and around operations and around glass, which is our, our agile or internal agile development process. We can teach you that. But what you're bringing is, you know, is a relationship, is an understanding of what it's like in a different geography, right? Having to work remotely, what it's like being in another business function where, you know, you run, you run a, um, an, an update at the same time we're trying to close the books, right? You, you have right. to have that kind of gut level understanding of what it's like. And so that's, that's really the, that's the essence of trust without trust. You know, you're just not going to be able to drive transformation because trust leads to blameless, right? And I don't really believe in blame, but it's where most organizations spend their time because you've screwed up or I've screwed up or I couldn't do whatever. And rather than focusing on fixing it, we focus on being defensive and we yeah. try to get, so trust allows us to get past that. Yeah. Well, and with your ex extremely varied and mixed background in both IT and business, is this something, when did you figure this all out? Was this something that came to you when you were in one of your business roles and you thought, 
boy, if I'm ever in charge of IT, I'm going to fix this. I mean, how long <laughs> has been philosophy? Well, I wasn't sure I'd ever even be in a CIO role. It was, uh, you know, I was headed down to a CFO, another, you know, a number of different paths. So, oh. no, you know, it really was, uh, I would say it was several years ago. Uh, when I came into the CIO role, one of the things I discovered was that was a, a number of those issues. We weren't communicating you know, the prior, you know, my predecessor really wants his role, his view of the world was, I just don't want anybody to call me, right? That's, I should just, you know, I want to make it boring. That's, that's the goal. Yeah. I thought we had an opportunity to do more than that. And really, once we started defining our kind of our agile culture and our agile uh, methodology, then, you know, when we defined, you know, we use some of the things, the learnings from Spotify with, tribe and squad leads and, and, mm -hmm. you know, and, and building the scrum really our, our schedule across all of it, you know, then, then it became obvious that we had some opportunity to go influence. Yeah. We started to really go drive some significant improvements in, in operational capability. And that's when, you know, that, that's when I think my organization started to see that, wow, we really do have a lot to offer and this is a great time to be in it. And this is a great time for us to, you know, to be able to, to, um, step broadcast that message. Yeah. To, well, to really step up and deliver. And I, I've heard over my, the many years that I've been involved with interviewing and talking with CIOs, both at CIO Magazine and later in our CIO events division, and now, and now on leadership live shows, um, I've heard so many descriptions of CIO means chief integration officer, chief innovation officer. My favorite one is chief influence officer. The idea that you can do the sorts of things that will have, once you've got that competency established and the trust built, uh, I, I just really like the way you talk about empathy, because I think that that's something that I think we're all, the whole world is getting a whole crash course in that these days, isn't it? They are, actually. It's, it, it, it's the same message, right? It's the ability to put ourselves in someone else's shoes, and you know, ultimately that is the that is the underpinning of diversity and diversity brings with it a lot of power, right? A lot of capability, a lot of innovation, as you pointed out, those things come from organizations and cultures, honestly, that are more diverse. Good, good. Let us switch gears and talk a little bit about, I know that the future of work is something that is very interesting to a lot of CIOs right now, especially since we're having, having to re-envision it, where, you know, in a world that is going to be pretty dramatically changed over probably the next year. Um, I've heard it called the, the new normal, but I think it's more like we're in a period of the new abnormal right now. And one of the things that people always think of when they think of a future of work where more people are actually from their homes is the cybersecurity implications of that. And I know that that is one of your many areas of expertise. Um, so talk a little bit about the the kind of concerns that you've had as the CIO in your CIO expanded role at Lexmark about making sure you're delivering on the security with a much more diverse and scattered workforce in their homes. Well, the, primarily what it points out, right? I mean, the, the thing that you see there is that the role of segmentation the, mm -hmm. and, the, and the, uh, the need for least privileges and the need for zero trust. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we call that, you know, safe access for everything. That's kind of our internal, um, you know, branding of it. But that's the way we think of it. Right. And, and what we have found 
you know, through our interactions is it's not, it is not sufficient to just say we're going to move to the cloud because we have seen very big companies that don't understand how to secure the cloud, right? Or secure applications that are running the cloud. I mean, just don't really have a, a great understanding of, of uh, the basic principles creating security in that space. And at the same time, Amazon and Microsoft notice, I mean, they've, they've pushed down power to the developer, right? So these application security groups or network security groups and resource groups, I mean, it's, you're really able to go, as a developer, you're able to go do all of that. And mm -hmm. before you had a specialist that understood firewall rules, understood connectivity, that understood, you know, I'd say the, 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 um, the need for a, a different path or different protections for enterprise versus email, for example, although both are obviously important. You know, now you have people that don't, that are able to go impact those things that really don't have that training, don't have that, that governance background or that security background. And so we see this being, you know, the opportunity to, so safe access for everything is making sure that we understand the segmentation that the, the crown jewel network, that's going to be a different experience logging into that. Yeah. That's going to be a different experience for privileged access management into a, a sysadmin, regardless where they're coming in from. And then finally, when you look at how we're going to secure that endpoint, you know, that, that looks very different. Maybe it is virtual desktop. Maybe mm -hmm. it is VPN. Maybe it is a form of VPN that, you know, that's, that is um, uh, even more secure. And so that's really the, the path that, that we have been on, right? So we've been on, you know, a number of these principles, you know, network access control worked really well when everything was in a facility. And initially network access control was if you have physical proximity and you can plug into the jack in the, in the wall, then you're okay, right? You were authenticated and then you just had to log in. Well, but now we're pushing that out to where we're trying to, we're having device, we're having certificates, we're having people authenticate from wherever they are, right? And that's a, that's a connectivity perspective as well as a, uh, a role and an access perspective. Yeah. Now, the, I, and I'll add just one thing. It also points out the need for a shift, uh, better collaboration between IT and the business area because when you think of role-based security, it either ends up being the manager that makes a decision or an IT person that makes a decision or I think the best case is a business process owner, right? Where there is somebody that is accountable for ensuring that Mary Fran's access is in fact right, that she should be able to get into the source code repository, or she should be able to get into this planning system. And so that's where we see the shift. That's the shift we've been going through internally, moving yeah. from where it was really um, seen as just a technical need to where now it has to be a core business uh, responsibility and mm -hmm. ultimately security is the re is the responsibility of everybody right it's it is we often say that it's you know security's role is to protect the brand because a small event has a huge potentially a huge impact and so its sure. role is to protect the brand but everybody in the organization if done well has a role you know has a has a role in that so well, and this approach that you have to it, and I think you've made a lot of great points there, is also reflected in your, essentially your internal Lexmark University, your training. I was surprised when you told me you do the safe access and um, the glass agile approach and even the ITIL, the um, 
I always remember information technology something library. Information right? library. Actually, iTools actually rebranded it. They they dropped because it was so hard. They dropped it, and now their branding is just iTil with version four. So okay. it's kind I'm, of interesting. I'm not sure that helps, but you know, I'm <laughs> I sure agreed. Their marketing people thought it was brilliant at the time. Um, You've that training isn't just something that IT people go through at Lexmark. You've got all sorts of other people from different divisions who you train in some of these. Talk a little bit about that because I, I found that I found that surprising because I, I don't think of sales and marketing people as the sort of folks that are gonna well sit still for ITIL training, for instance. Well, and that's you know, so when we think about it, it, it it's where we have seen the most progress there is where, where and where, honestly, where IT has been able to create some value is mm-hmm. if, I, if I look at our um, global business service centers, you know, in, yeah. in Hungary and in, in Philippines, you know, when they look at how they do operation, how they do change, you know, our glass process uh, actually carries a lot of weight with them. They see a lot of similarities in terms of what we have done and how it works. And rather than reinventing the the the, uh, the process, you know they've been willing to adopt and adapt to our idea. You know the, the idea, demand, enhancement. You know that process is a part of Glass. That's how we we solicit or ingest new ideas. This is where innovation comes from. You know those are some really universal principles, and you know we take lessons they've learned and we folded some of those back into the the process to make the training, to make the messaging, to make the execution of it even better. It's one of the reasons we've, you know, we've changed how we look at acceptance criteria. So instead of just having an individual say, well, I would like for the screen to look like X, we actually require them to, to do the test plan then. So we do the test plan as the acceptance criteria. It sounds like a small thing, except that when you've, what happens typically is I develop it, I get to you and here's my acceptance criteria. I've done that work. And then I get to that end and they say, well, no, I really meant this or it needed to look like that. And so yet it's tough to have that discipline up front, but when they understand, you know, as a part of the overall process and the training, when they over, when they understand why it's important back to the communication and to some degree empathy with IT, yeah. When you go back to that, when you get to that point, when you can get that kind of understanding, that kind of joint uh, knowledge or, or mm-hmm. uh, understanding, you know, that's a, that's a great thing. You've broken down some barriers and you've yeah. made the overall organization more effective by eliminating waste. Well, and you've also created essentially a two-way street for empathy. It's not just about IT people understanding what their problem, what the problems are on the business side. There's actually more of a mutual understanding. I've always envisioned that as like the bridge between IT and the rest of the business. Um, And in some, I know in some organizations, CIOs don't even, they don't even, they, they forbid language where you're going to talk about the business as though IT isn't part of it. But I've always pictured it in my head like a bridge. And it's always seemed to me that the technology people have to go further over the bridge to get the business people engaged. But from what you're describing, it sounds like it's almost more of a meeting in the middle of it. It is. And, and again, you can't, I can't underestimate or, or undersell the amount of um, value in communication. Yeah. And so this, you know, if we, we go, uh, we make a policy change to revoke, you know, everyone's um, uh, admin access for your laptop. So we had thousands of people that had access. And as a part of our 
actually our work from anywhere uh, process, you know, yeah. that was one of the things we changed. We changed people's ability to modify. We changed that whole process, right? Mm -hmm. To enable it to be more secure and more effective. It doesn't mean there aren't exceptions, but you know, what we found, what we went out to communicate was if you're in R and D, for example, and you're a technologist, you're actually twice as likely to fall for a phishing campaign as someone in finance or someone in supply chain. And you know, that's a bias. The, why do they fall for it? They fall for it because there's a bias, right? They overestimate their capability because they work with technology all day and they know it. And yet, so do the people that design those campaigns and they take advantage of that. And so that's part of what we go out to, to communicate and, and educate on is, you know, look, you have to do security at scale. And at scale means you have to understand the human nature side of it because that's, that's still the biggest risk, right? It, that is still the biggest risk in terms of people gaining access uh, to your information or your, your network. Well, and that surprises me to think that technology people would be just as susceptible or even in some cases more susceptible as, you know, what we've always referred to around here is the kind of the stupid user effect. You know, as something happens and my husband is very technologically deep and he'll say, that sounds like a sue to me. And that's a stupid user error. <laughs> so those of us that are not steeped in technology tend to think that, you know, we're going to be more the victims of that sort of thing. So that's yeah, a And yet people overestimate them, their capabilities all the time. It's why, you know, it's why bias is such a, uh, yeah. a difficult thing, right? Bias causes you to make really poor decisions. And that's, well, it's we have why, to spend time understanding that. Well, and it's why in any diversity and inclusion efforts to kind of take a broader HR uh, umbrella angle on all of this, the training in unconscious bias is something that is a very important stepping stone uh, along that. Let's, I wanted to circle back and talk about creating a zero defect culture and what that has actually meant at Lexmark. And I, it, it sounds like something very technical and very cybersecurity related, but the way you described it to me, it actually is, uh, again, with that kind of empathy angle, it is actually got a much broader lens about building that trust between IT and all the, all the rest of the business. So talk about that, about what led you to push for this and what it means at Lexmark. Well, one of the, yeah, this is a, this is a great topic. And, and, you know, ultimately we want to kill the IT ticket, right? We want to kill that incident ticket. And when you really boil it down, you have to understand where that comes from. And, you know, it's really something I learned in manufacturing, building factories and, and implementing Six Sigma there where, you know, you really have to have a deep understanding of them, the number and type of opportunities for a defect. And so when we think about a, a zero defect culture, it's, really an understanding of all the modes of failure and then going and, going and addressing them. And so internally, one of those things that was really hard to overcome is developers tend to build something, throw it over the wall, and then operations just has to deal with it. And so yeah. we've, as a part of that, we started doing design for operations or design for supportability so that, uh -huh. so that we start measuring, we have KPIs and we have performance goals for all of the development teams to ensure that they understand the impact that they have because they can impact, they can make it more supportable or less supportable. Mm -hmm. It's really the, you know, I, I don't, it's not necessarily DevOps, but it may be the intent of DevOps where you would have someone that really understood the code also supporting that. You know, that's not the real world though. The people that build it aren't the people that run it, but the people that build it need to have empathy for the people that run it. 
because yeah. ultimately that's a bad experience. An incident means it was something was working and now it's not. And that's a bad experience for our customer, internal well, or external. And well, so that's the goal, right? The goal of a zero defect culture is to get everybody to understand. It's to communicate throughout the whole value chain exactly mm -hmm. what their role is in it and how they can act to make it better. And part of that's training, but a lot of it's communication and, and measurement, right? In terms of understanding true root cause for something, not just that this code did X or this library was missing or this you know, data was missing. It's yeah. to go beyond that, to build, to have people trained to understand the control and how that control should flow through. Well, and that uh, even a term like design for supportability is so much more, um, it, so much easier to understand just as a, as a regular person or as a regular employee of a business than when you say DevOps. You know, Dev, again, it's one of those right. very technology specific term, uh, I guess, something like DevOps. And I think, and, and you said that you're less a believer in DevOps and more in design for supportability. And I just... Uh, the editor in me really applauds that, you know, the use of <laughs> the use of language that makes it very clear what you're talking about, um, which is why I wanted to ask you more about the zero defect, because that it sounds like zero defect culture was something that came from more of the business side of your experience. Oh, I, it definitely came from my experience in manufacturing that yeah. you know, many IT people believe they can't do anything to influence incidents. And I've had partners of ours come to me and say, you know, Brad, we've got an offering. We'd like to automate incident management. I'm like, well, I really don't want to automate incidents. I'd like to eliminate incidents. To get rid of Automating something that you should eliminate is honestly the definition of waste. So that yeah. was really the, you know, part of the, the goal there, right? Was that in, and actually in a, a discussion with a, a partner of ours, you know, they said, Hey, we've got this offering. We could, you know, we could go drive, you know, 20% improvement reduction in number of incidents over three years. Um, I got to tell you, in the last three years, I've seen a 50 to 60% reduction in the number of incidents every single year to where now, you know, we have fewer, we have half the incidents in an entire year that we used to have in two weeks. And so well, that's what's possible, right? It's, and that you've got to get to where people believe and, and, uh, and, and really can see the, you know, the, can see how they make an impact. And that wasn't something that you did by buying a specific product and applying mm -hmm. it to the solution. That was actually a kind of a management level mindset change for everyone involved. That's why it's a culture. It was purely culture. We didn't buy a single anything, right? We didn't buy, we had, we already had everything we needed. We really just weren't using it. And so, you know, from a monitoring management standpoint, we had all that stuff, it wasn't being used. Well, now exactly. it's being used to go drive understand the deep not so much that it's going to prevent the defect right it's to understand the defect when it does occur so that mm -hmm. you can go back and fix it you know in its root cause yeah well i think what you said when you started this whole pro process you were dealing with about 140 defects a month basically you know stuff just breaking is how we were defining defect and that last month you had three that's correct that's a, that's a pretty that's the kind of improvement that's, you know, that's possible. Good. 
Good. Tell me a little bit about, I'm always interested in the kind of the size and structure of the IT organization itself. And I know you have about probably around 350 full-time IT employees, full-time FTEs, and then the, uh, but it gets up to almost a thousand people when you add in all your partners and outsourcing arrangements. Do, Do I have that correct? Yeah, that's about right. And it is, and then I always ask about reorganizing and you've been in this expanded CIO role for about four years now. And you said, oh, I think we've reorganized three or four times. So do you do, do you do that? Is it a regular rolling reorganization that you do? How, how are you structured today? Well, it's interesting because one of our, um, I'd say values, right? And I, I kind of see four, three core values for, for the IT organization. The first is around service empowerment, innovation, but service means um, that we're delivering an an excellent service, right? There's an excellent return or value for what we do and that we are going to have one Lexmark means one IT organization. And there's always that debate about business led or not. Well, you know, I I put that up front. Our organization is led by those business functions, right? So we're support and we're a service organization. And, but when you look at that one Lexmark equals one IT organization, the definition of that means that we will be organized globally without any redundancy or overlap. Mm-hmm. And so what I found is that, you know, we had global operations, but every geography, every local uh, organization was trying to do everything. Mm-hmm. And so we eliminated all of that structure, right? And so we have, and, then, and we looked at what core competency, competencies were there. And we actually kept reorganizing until we got it right, or we felt like we had gotten it right. Mm -hmm. And so today, you know, I have architecture that's really kind of here in the U.S. I've got support that's in the Philippines. Now I've got a development support and some operations that are in the Philippines and testing. And then in uh, India is development. And And we did that based on what their core competencies were and what they were really good at. And so we didn't ask them. I don't ask them to do things they're not good at. I look at those organizations and I say, you know, it's if you're good at testing, which, you know, our organization, the Philippine uh, in, in Cebu, they're excellent at testing. They love it. They're great at it. Yeah. But they weren't very good at development. They did this. The things they were doing generated lots of errors, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And I go to India. That organization is fantastic at development. Not so great at testing just because of the, the mindset, the methodology, the culture, right? There's there's a lot of alignment we can, we can do there. Yeah. And that, that was really the goal. And so we wiped out all of that structure. And when we did that, things got a lot simpler. And mm-hmm. I would tell you that in my organization, basically, I only have two levels of management. So there may be 300 and something people, but mm-hmm. I only have first level managers and then my direct reports. And that is it globally. So out of that entire organization, it's really just, it's that flat. And that, that's enabled agility, that's enabled empowerment that's enabled some aspects of um, innovation. I think of innovation as that relentless pursuit of improvement in learning. And in learning, there's maturity. And it's, you know, you want, to, you want an organization, I want an organization that learns very quickly um, yes. so that it can mature. And that's really been the, that's been the goal. That's kind of the, that, that at the end of the day, uh, Mary Fran is kind of the secret sauce, right? Is to get an organization that learns quickly and can mature quickly. Well, and, and you've, uh, from what you've told me about the organization, that's also led to a, a very small, almost predictable turnover. I mean, you have, you have people that stay with you for a long time. 
That's true. And, you know, a lot of my peers, when I talk to them, they, uh, they put at the list, the top of their list, uh, talent acquisition. Yes. I really haven't had an issue with talent acquisition because we have an organization that is relatively flat. We have mm-hmm. an organization that, that has scored really well in the empowerment, you know, employee engagements scores, right, that, we, that HR measures. And my organization scores really well there. And we're able to attract really good people. And, you know, they, I said this earlier, um, and it's actually part of the value prop that, uh, you know, that, that I would sell to my team is this is an awesome opportunity because we're going to go do the things mm-hmm. that other IT organizations talk about. And so the difference between us and some other IT organization you may go to, I'll tell you, the difference is we're actually going to go do it and we're going to do it quickly. And mm-hmm. that's, and who doesn't want to go add value and do cool stuff, right? And do really innovative technical things uh, because we believe we can. And we have an organization that's able to, that's reached that level of maturity where they can go do that. And yeah. so it's not that we don't have zero turnover, uh, mm-hmm. but it's really low. And the ones that do leave, you know, it's a, it's generally for them going into some kind of a, a much more, a much broader role, okay. much more advanced opportunity. And, you know, I'm here to support that. I see my job as a leader is to make them successful. And that, that's the essence of being, uh, you know, a servant leader and a, and a service organization is to, is really to make others successful. That's, uh, I, I love that philosophy, and I especially like the servant leadership idea. And um, let's talk in, the, in our few remaining minutes here on our broadcast, let's talk about two things. One, going into 20, 2020 and 21, what some of your top business and technology initiatives are, and has anything changed or shuffled substantially? And then we'll wrap up talking a little bit about your advice to other IT leaders, the kind of things that you've learned in being a CIO with this expanded role and so much business background. So uh, let me circle back to top business and tech initiatives going forward. I know that you've done, you have a whole new approach with a data analytics center, for instance, a center of excellence, but tell me a, a bit about what's on your horizon. Well, we're, we're continuing to push the, I'd say the bounds of collaboration. Right? You know, one of those is we talked about that digital threads. So that's making available the, you know, all of the data that's, that, that uh, Lexmark collects from whatever form, right? Putting all that into a data lake and, and uh, making that available. But really the, the insight, where does that come from? Well, one of the things we've done is we've partnered with our R&D organization. For them, they had a passion around, and honestly, most of the data scientists that Lexmark has, around enabling Lexmark to, you know, taking it to that higher level of data analytics and, and machine learning and AI and capabilities, right? Answering those questions that, have been nagging questions forever and we've just not had the either the people the focus the data to to make it happen well you know it brings the the capability and we're collaborating with that group for to enable this data and analytics center. and what's and to show its importance what's really kind of cool you know they they set up shop they set up shop in what used to be our ceo and you know two ceos ago his mm-hmm. office his office suite and that's where this this data and analytics center is it's in the kind of the middle of the, 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 the plant here or the, the office building. It's in the middle of that office building and, and it's open, right? It's anybody that wants to come and bring their idea, they can meet with a data scientist and they can start mapping out a plan to see, is it appropriate? You know, is it something we can go do? 
and, and then giving them the resource and the capability, and in some cases training, right? Because it may be training around data wrangling or something like that to go yeah. do it. And then we've got the data available, right? Where they can go do that. And we've got, you know, controls and things that we've already worked through so that we can do that safely and not violate privacy and mm -hmm. know, some of the other concerns that might be out there. And so those are areas where, as we look forward, transitioning that knowledge worker from someone who looks at a report to mm -hmm. someone that can predict the future, right? That's our goal. Every one of us should be striving to be able to predict the future. And that might be the future of a supplies model. It might be the future of cloud usage or cloud statistics or IoT streaming or whatever that topic is. Now, I, I, won't, I won't claim to have a, you know, the crystal ball in any of that because there are lots of smart people that think about it every day. Now, let's get them to think about that in a different way where they can they can really take their business experience and turn it into some, some really valuable insight. Yeah. And that's going to be true. And, and so I think that's, that's one part of it. Mm -hmm. And then the second part of it is moving the organization to be real time. And, you know, I think about part of the reason we moved our Honda enterprise cloud to, to Azure was to really set up for a move to, to S4. And, and that, that move to S4 was to move to, a, a technology and infrastructure that would allow finance and accounting to be real time, mm -hmm. to be in a situation where they, they could potentially close the books every day if they wanted to. And that's the, that is the, that's part of our goal, right? Our goal is to help enable that, that kind of reimagining for them in terms of what they do, how they visualize, you know, the, the, the business data to be able to see the future, be able to predict the future. And then hopefully, have us intersect that future as it uh, as it comes to to reality. Essentially, have their own version of the transformation as a service. Absolutely, and really to use it right to do the two two things we said to be able to create those business insights mm -hmm. and then us be in an, in a position to implement those insights instantly, right? To be able to change the organization, the process, or the the application, and to be able yep. to do that real time. Mm -hmm. Now, as we wrap up here, I want to talk about some of your leadership lessons, things you've learned. Now, you do have the luxury of knowing your company and all the people in it really well. You've been there for 18 plus years. Does it, does it necessitate, do CIOs need to be in place for more than a decade at a company? Is it your longevity with Lexmark that has turned you into the kind of a leader you are today? Or well, what that's do you a great question? I, I would yeah. say that uh, it doesn't. I've had a bunch of, you know, I've had many different experiences, even within Lexmark. I've had some different role, um, even when they've been related with, you know, every three to four years. And mm -hmm. so within that context, you know, to me, what's most important has really been what I learned way back when I was in the military around initiative and allowing and, and having the expectation, the training for the people that you work with to be able to empower them, right? That so they will, and I define empowerment as the willingness and the expectation that you'll take action in the face of uncertainty. Mm -hmm. and that's really what creates an organization that's able to, I think, be able to, to perform very well is one where every single person is bringing their best every day mm -hmm. and that we're leveraging their best, right? That when they have a good idea, we test that idea and we implement that idea as fast as we can. And you can, and those things don't cost money typically. Right. Everybody gets hung up on, when I first started this role, everybody talked about budget. And, and, you know, from where we were then to now, 
Uh, we reduced the total IT spend by you know, almost 50% and delivered far more transformational projects than we were doing before. And nobody talks about budget anymore. I never spend time on budget because I believe the unlimited resource that we have shouldn't be money, it should be people. And we yeah. free up that resource through empowerment. That's, well, that's the, you know, that is the, uh, but I didn't learn that here. I, you know, I've refined that here, but I learned that, you know, a long time ago in, uh, you know, in, in my, in the, in the military when I learned at West Point. Well, and that's the, uh, essentially the, the Brad Clay leadership version of engagement leading to productivity. And oh, absolutely. Engage people just, they I, it, want to bring their best every day. And then, you know, what most companies do and many managers do is that they try to squash that and control it. Um, I don't want to control it. My job is to try and set that free. Mm -hmm. I love that. I love that whole notion. Thank you so much for joining us today. This was such a great conversation. And um, I'm, I, I, I'm sorry that we couldn't be live on LinkedIn as we play. Absolutely. But I'm sure you'll also, you'll probably see a great big uptick in the number of people that want to connect with you on LinkedIn, uh, especially after they download this and listen to it later on today on CIO.com. So uh, at the close of the show here, I just want to tell you that if you were not able to listen in on our conversation yet, please plan on watching the full episode later on today. It will be posted both on YouTube in our IDG, IDG Tech Talk channel and also on CIO.com. And I urge you to take a moment to subscribe to that IDG Tech Talk channel because you don't want to miss if you're just discovering CIO Leadership Live now, you're not going to want to miss future episodes. I'd like to say every single one of them is just as great as this, but in reality, they're all just so different because I think the role of CIO and the way CIOs are demonstrate great leadership in their companies is something that really differs from person to person. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation as much as I did. I was here with Brad Clay, who is the Chief Information and Compliance Officer and a Senior VP at Lexmark International. And I hope you'll plan on joining us for our next episode of CIO Leadership Live, which will be on Wednesday, July 8th, again at 12 noon Eastern. And I'll be joined by Stuart Kippelman, who is the CIO at Parsons Corp. Thanks so much for tuning in or for downloading today. And I hope you enjoyed the conversation and we look forward to seeing you again next time. This podcast is produced by IDG Communications Incorporated.